Christianity was made to be experienced in community in a felt and visual and sens sensual way. It's just very hard to experience the kingdom and the culture of the kingdom when you're plopped into like a high school or whatever where none of the rules and none of the habits and cultural totems are really drawn from Catholicism. If you can find a place where all of these people can come together, you can really live in a way that accentuates, that elevates Catholic culture and Catholic tradition and Catholic um, values. How can we bring the beauty and novelty of the gospel into our culture? How can we translate the richness of the faith so that we speak the truth in the language of our modern times? In today's episode, creative entrepreneur, artist, musician, and amateur boxer Anthony D'Ambrosio shares his thoughts on how faith translates even into the unexpected aspects of human life. As I have worked in, in building Catholic creatives, there's also a deep, deep resonance with people who see the need for design thinking and for intentionality to be applied to issues that we're having in the church. Part of the growth, the spiritual growth that we need to be cultivating for people is like how to sacrifice, how to listen to the things that you need to sacrifice for. It is Christ that offers the true novelty and revolution that the world is searching for. By being attentive to Him, we can shape our modern culture and become living echoes of God's love for the world. This is Living the Call. This, um, this platform's pretty cool, this uh, Riverside, because, I mean, the, the main part of it is it just it records you locally. So, mm -hmm. you know, some of the, like, I heard your, um, your podcast with Matt and you, you guys like put like, Hey, we've got some technical issues or whatever. But some mm -hmm. of that was just like voice over IP. Yeah. You know, like you were talking and it was, and somebody, it got like into that sort of zoomy kind yeah. of robotic voice. Mm -hmm. But so what this does, this platform, and there's a couple of other ones that are like it is it kind mm -hmm. of eliminates that part of it because you're just like, when I pull the file off of your, it'll be pulling it off of your machine there and not sort of over the internet. Although it does do an online backup, which is nice in case something happens. Um, yeah. You know, we it's really cool. There. I actually had like, the, our system was we asked guests to record locally themselves, but yeah. there was just a lot of times they wouldn't be able to figure it out. And then, so we would be stuck with like the, the Zoom, which is, what happened with Matt. So that's, uh, I think this is really cool that, that it does it that way. That's really, it's nice. There's been a, there's, there's been a ton of evolution, um, in podcasting, just in general, technology, investment, content, all of that stuff. Um, so it's, it's actually cool to see. Do you like that? Uh, you like that tat I sent you? Yeah, it was pretty sick. I was like, uh, this guy's got a good eye. It's got a good eye. <laughs> So super cool, super cool artist. Um, his name is uh, Anthony Sant. I, I would pronounce it Santeja. It's S A N T E L L A. Mm. Uh, I only know one other dude with a name with that last name, and he's Cuban. So my guess is he's a he's a Hispanic guy. Um, but he was on the cover of this magazine that I really well, it's like a quarterly uh, called Dappled Things. Are you familiar mm, with that? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're so awesome. yeah, my cousin is the publisher of Dappled Things. Really. Mm. Yeah, Bernardo Aparicio. Anyway, who like I'd never met, even though he's my cousin. Mm. He's like third, you know, third cousin, uh, twice removed. One of those deals. But uh, yeah, it's a sick looking. I don't know if it's like a seraphim or a cherubim or whatever it is, but just amazing. I don't have a single tattoo. You've got tattoos, right? 
Uh, just one, yeah. Uh, just one. Okay, but you're an aficionado? <laughs> I would love to get another one. Another, yeah. I'm thinking about getting another tat during my, uh, you know, uh, in the next couple of months. So, uh, oh, cool. I'll, I'll add the seraphim. Is it a seraphim? Is that what it is? Cherubim? I don't, uh, you know, I don't know because I read an article about it, about this particular artwork, which is actually a, a sculpture for, you know, anybody, for the folks listening. It's basically um, a, like a six foot tall mixed media sculpture of a multi winged, single eyed kind of beast. We'll put it in the show notes so people can see it. But, um, it's just so amazingly powerful, and I, I read a thing, an article about the exhibit itself, and in it, the angel is described as the angel from Revelation. But I looked at, um, you know, in Revelation, like there's a there's an image of an angel with like fire coming up his legs. Then there's Michael's mentioned in Revelation, but I don't know of an angel like this in Revelation. I do know of angels like this in the Old Testament, like Ezekiel and all that stuff with like all the wings and the weird faces. So I'm not sure which it, which it is. Based on my limited kind of angelic, uh, you know, understanding, I think it's a seraphim or supposed to mm-hmm. be a seraphim. Yeah. Or seraph, you know, I don't know what the singular is for seraphim. Mm-hmm. Seraph or seraph, yeah. <laughs> yeah, seraphim, I, that's how I, how I pronounce it. Well, if you're going to get one, like, I mean, this, this one would be one of those things you get like on a major body part. This is like a <laughs> back one, right? Or like a chest one. Yeah. Um, where, where do you have yours? Uh, I have a one right here that says Doom Spiro Sparrow and means while I breathe, I hope. Oh, beautiful. Sorry. I missed that when you showed me where it was. Cause I didn't have the window open. Where is Bicep. it? On yeah. your bicep. Okay, cool. Yeah, I noticed that my, my son's got a, a number of them. My 18-year-old has a number of them, um, kind of mostly in his uh, chest and sh- a shoulder and some, you know, the top of his arm. But I've noticed also, like, tats have migrated on young people. It used to be like, I think, it used to be like more kind of like an arm where you kept it more covered or I don't know, like I just like the typical places for tattoos. But it seems now that there's like these interesting ones right on the shoulder I've seen some like on on the palms of hand, like on the front of people's hands. It seems like they're kind of migrating in location. Yeah. I don't know. Calves, thighs, you mm-hmm. know. For yeah. sure. When did you get your first one? Uh, it's actually a family tattoo. We did it as a Christmas gift to uh, all of our siblings. Did it as a Christmas gift to each other. Um, oh wow! So we have a um, we have a union. Like all the kids unionized against our parents to make sure that. We had, uh, like, you know, good rights uh, for chores and things like that. And it, we did it when we were kids, and we've always, like, come back to it. Okay. So uh, we'll draft legislation, and one of the things that we voted on was uh, that we were going to get family tattoos and that we wouldn't get to pick ours, but that the rest of the kids would pick uh, what each person got. So they, uh, we all picked a... Latin, Latin words that, that course, we feel course. like. course. You have to have a Latin yeah. yeah, Latin words that we felt like uh, articulated who like each person was in the family and what their like core virtue uh, was. So, yeah, mine was hope. Did, did you and your brother get the same one or similar ones or totally different? My brother got libertas. Oh, cool. Uh, same same general area back back of his arm though. So that's a ton of trust to having somebody for them to pick uh, your your tattoo. Did yeah. that apply to like every sibling? Your parents too, or just all the siblings? The parents didn't uh, didn't partake. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were getting broken into the whole Catholic uh, tattoo thing is okay thing, you know. So yeah, yeah. was it and, and it was like at a particular age. Uh, this was, 
I, this was after I was in seminary, so it must have been uh, 23, somewhere around there. Okay, yeah. but everybody got it at the same time, irrespective of their age. It was one moment exactly. or got yeah. it. All right, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Um, no, super. I, I don't have any, but if I did get one, I think I'd go for the Seraphim thing I shared with you or the Cairo, which I've always thought was really cool. It's like, uh, you know, you probably... You, you know what that is, uh, mm-hmm. obviously, but like, and there's a bunch of different variations of it, but I thought that that was like a super impactful symbol that said a lot, but also invited conversation. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, it, I mean, obviously it's a crystal Christian symbol. It's a Christogram, but there's still enough people who are like, what is that? You know, I, I had right. a Cairo ring for a number of years and I'd wear it and I, I, I cannot, I'm telling you, blown away by the amount of conversations that that thing triggered just by people asking me, well, what is that? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, inevitably the story is like, well, it's an ancient Christogram. What's that? And it's, well, you know, it, it, and so it's like a huge, I don't know, I found it to be a very cool evangelical kind of uh, tool. Yeah, I love this. Um, yeah, being a, when I was in seminary, the collar was a great one. You know, people were like, oh, well, yeah. why are you celibate? You know, so that, that, was, that was good. But I, I haven't had many good conversation starters uh, that are visible since then, so... Did you, did you, when you were wearing like clerics, when you were in the seminary, did you like wear them at all times? Did you go to the store in Roman collar? Uh, there was certain days when we did, I think it was like Fridays during Lent, we wore cassocks. Uh, and that was perhaps the more intense, that was like the, uh, it was definitely intense for sure. Yeah. I did everything that I could not to betray the, like to my normal classmates that I was in seminary. Uh, try to stick to the dress codes, but make it make it enough, uh, make it cool enough to not be yeah. be caught for it. But the cassocks and surplus thing added me for sure. <laughs> well, but, but but the so okay, so you wore the surplus, but this is not out like out out in the world. You wore a surplus like just to go to Seven Eleven or oh, something. Oh, not the surplus, but the cassock. Oh, okay. We did. I was going to say you're I, you're a, a hell of a liturgist if you're doing yeah, that. You got your IC. Ca- yeah, you got the surplus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be really funny. No, I think we just did the. Uh, I think we just did the surplus, or sorry, just the cassock. Just the cassock, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love cassocks. I uh, deacons don't. Well, I mean, deacons, depending on the diocese, I mean, the dress code can can vary quite a bit. There are a number of dioceses where the deacons do wear uh, Roman collars. How is it in, in in your diocese? Just out of curiosity, do you know? Ooh, um, do permanent deacons in Austin? I mean, now I'm in Austin, and I have no idea. No, but, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know in, either. In Dallas, it was. I mean, it was pretty open. There, there weren't very conservative rules for it there. Interesting. Yeah. In LA, we don't wear the deacons, permanent deacons do not wear the Roman collar. Mm-hmm. Um, other dioceses do wear the Roman collar. My brother is a, a religious priest. He's a Benedictine. And so he wears his, you know, tunic, basically his monk gear, wherever he goes. And it, and it is like, uh, I mean, it's one of those crosses that is definitely like sometimes you want that anonymity and you want not somebody to go, oh, father, or what's wrong with this guy? A lot of people, that, when I walk around my brother, people think it's like like a Jedi thing or like a costume. In L.A., there's not a ton of like Benedictines that walk around the street, right? Yeah. Um, but, um, but it is, I mean, a huge kind of calling card where people... You know, people will come up obviously all the time and say, Hey, I need prayer, or I need this, or I need confession, or whatever. And so you definitely see the power of those kind of outward symbols to draw people, you know, together or closer to, to God in that case. Yeah. I I think it's great. I think it's great. I think the the visual symbol is something that is shocking in a 
our almost artistic way. So yeah. When you when you got out of the the seminary, was it uh, a particular moment of inflection, or was it a series of kind of things that faded to that you know decision or discerned towards that decision through a variety of things? Yeah. Well, I was this. It is hard to do that without giving context for why I went in. But the my first day in seminary, I came in fresh from the Warped Tour punk rock scene with gauges in my ears and long hair. And I thought it would be cool to, to show up looking like that and then, like, you know, do the whole buzz your hair like you're going to boot camp thing. Uh, probably not the best not the best way to show up. I think that that definitely made me stick out a little bit. But mm. um, when I was going through the process of discernment, I think that I came in right with a, a, a pretty fresh conversion or reversion, if you will, through the Steubenville Life Teen kind of track. And the feeling that I got was that if you wanted to be hardcore, and I was ready to be hardcore, then the thing was to go to seminary and mm. go all in, you know, give your life completely to God. But that became much more nuanced to me when I was in seminary and when I was learning about the lay vocation. Yeah. I realized that the call to be radical was universal and that marriage was really the front lines of the war in a way. Uh, and I, I saw that living in the world as a lay person and learning about marriage and being able to, to be a good marriage, um, build a good marriage, build a community around that. That was like, um, that was in a way the fault line between the kingdom uh, of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. So that's where I wanted to be. And I left with that sense of there's something that God is calling me to do that's more creative than being a, a sacramental dispensary, which is in a lot of ways like what the priesthood is. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was, yeah, that was where I, I felt moved to. For, the, for those folks who may not know the whole Steubenville track that you describe, what is that? Well, uh, yeah, I guess that is a, for a lot of people, peers in my uh, generation, the the youth group system that was working was Life Teen. Parishes would uh, jump onto Life Teen, which had resources and a certain method for doing youth ministry uh, that that was really working. And a, a big part of that was in the summer. Any most Life Teen parishes would send uh, buses to these big conferences called Steubenville conferences, put on by. Uh, the College of Steubenville uh, University, and they would—they were just big, charismatic uh, concert music festivals slash like Catholic cultural festivals, and um, made you feel really good. Lots of free hugs, lots of uh, lots <laughs> of good feelings. So uh, had a, had some deep conversion moments, and at the end of them, they always did altar calls for um, men who are considering the priesthood. So that was like a big, you know, crescendo moment. And if you went forward for that, you got a lot of kudos from the other, yeah. uh, you know, other kids. So, and I'm not saying that was bad, but I definitely think that that, uh, 
it, it sends a message. Like, sure. if if the most intense sort of moment where the special people get prayer is the call to to priesthood, and you don't see anything like that for the call to marriage, you know, uh, you 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 I think internally start to to feel that that's what um, what radical holiness really looks like, you know. So. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. And that's not taking anything away, obviously, from the ministerial priesthood, but the recognition, to your point, that you know those those who are baptized are part of that universal priesthood, and that you have an offering and a battle line and a you know whatever front for you to man or woman, um, mm-hmm. and that that comes through um, you know the experience of married life, of rearing children, of going out there and you know, living a holy life of seeking perfection and bringing other people closer and all that stuff. So totally agree with you on that. On the, on the, um, the kind of, you know, Steubenville thing, and, and just by way of reference, I've never been to one, so I, I don't know. And I've never, to be honest, never even been to a, a youth conference, even when I was young. But I, I have gone to World Youth Day. Um, and I went in, you know, like most of the settings are fairly interesting or even exotic, but I was at the one in Rio in uh, whatever year that was, 2013, I think it was. And I was certainly not in the category of young, even at that time. Um, I'm 47 now, so whatever would have been, you know, do the math, you know, 10 years ago or so. Mm -hmm. But I do remember just the idea of, you know, there was 3 million people on Copacabana Beach. Um, And you can even like Google Copacabana Youth Day and see the images, which are mind blowing of three million people all gathered together along this iconic beach and all of them point, you know, facing essentially like a giant stage where the Pope would actually have mass. And that experience to me um, was super powerful in the sense that I saw a lot of young people actually engaging in obviously life and being young and singing, doing music and all this other stuff, but also like engaged in matters of the faith and kind of walking and praying together and all of that. And just that, the simple act of being there, like among other people living the faith such an, in such an outward way, had a huge impact on me. I can't imagine the, being 18 or 19 and having that kind of thing. Is that something, I mean, I know there's always something supernatural, so don't get me wrong, right? But, but is that a big part of the, the, the sort of power or thrust of a lot of these youth conferences? Is that reality of seeing other people like look like you, act like you, come from places like you do, doing this where maybe you haven't seen that before, you've been more reserved? You know what I mean? Like how much of that is that is a sociological aspect of it that that gives you permission to have these deeper kind of um, spiritual experiences? I think it's amazingly important. I would say I think that a lot of people bag on the way that big retreats like that sort of hack into the like into your psychology in a way. Um, but I I think that there's sort of a, a combination or a, a, an interplay between the supernatural and the natural in that like, Christianity was made to be experienced in community in a felt and visual and sens- sensual way. And it's really hard to feel that as a teen, really anywhere. You know, it, it's just very hard to experience the kingdom and the culture of the kingdom when you're a lone ranger and plopped into like a, I guess a high school or whatever, where none of the rules and none of the habits and cultural totems are 
built into are, are are really drawn from Catholicism. So if you can find a place where all of these people can come together, you can really live in a way that um, that accentuates, that elevates Catholic culture and Catholic tradition and Catholic um, values. And those values create a sense of the supernatural. Like you get to touch heaven a little bit when you're around people who are really living out for that same purpose. So. Mm. Mm. You're the first person I ever heard say to me or use the word hack or maybe maybe it was hackathon <laughs> in the context of like work in the vineyard. You're the yeah. you're the first person I've ever and it, it's not just now. You just said it again now, but I'm talking about when we first met. Mm. You you said that and it always stuck with me. I'm like, man, this kid is really and I call you a kid, no offense, <laughs> but but uh but I was like, this guy is um it's a it's a term of endearment, Anthony. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. you know, it's a term of great love. When you stop hearing "kid," get worried. Um, <laughs> yeah, there but, you go. But uh, but I was like, this guy is really onto something super interesting because, you know, I came up and I want to touch on the duality you just talked about. This whole like you know hacking of psychology and how that relates because I think it's part of a broader issue around how spirit and matter. You know, there's a spirit and matter component to how we should be thinking about all these things, right? Mm -hmm. But I just want to touch on for a second before we get back to that point about this notion of hacking, because I think it is largely foreign to most people who are, you know, kind of in or around any type of church circle. The mm -hmm. idea, and when you told me this idea, I think it was specific to the whole Latino thing. It's like, oh, I think you said that's really worthy of a hackathon is what you said. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. such a great <laughs> idea. Such a great <laughs> idea. I was like, we should. Where the heck is this hack hackathon? But, um, <sighs> but this idea of like, you know, taking, looking at a challenge, right, across its continuum, right, from beginning to mm -hmm. end going, and looking at a spot in that and saying, I want to get really bright, creative people in a room with a whiteboard, and just look at ways to solve that and riff off each other, almost like a writer's room for like a TV series. But that concept of hacking or of a hackathon even more uh, is is something I just don't come across that often. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering like, wh like what's your experience been when you talk about that kind of con even that way of thinking in these, in these concepts, have you found that same type of kind of foreign reception to that concept? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, there's two like responses that I get. Like one is uh, this sense of like wanting to maintain purity that like we couldn't possibly intentionally create a religious experience for someone. And if we did, that would be inauthentic, you know? Mm. Um, and that is a, uh, that's perhaps one box of reactions that I get to the word. And perhaps even to the philosophy or philosophical underpinning behind how I think about that word. But uh, the other side would just be, oh, uh, that's marketing jargon and it's bad. You know, there's this yeah. sense um, that I'm drawing it from a perhaps evil overlord uh, that, that comes from this whole like sort of uh, Freudian yeah. marketing, branding sort of discipline, which... Uh, I think it's fair, but I, 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 I think there's a lot of baggage with it that we need to sort of perhaps sort through to, to find the gold. But I think I, I will also say that as I have worked in, in building Catholic creatives, there's also a deep, deep resonance with people who see the need for design thinking and for intentionality 
to be applied to issues that we're having in the church. And as I started Catholic Creatives, like the, the beginning, the first thing mm-hmm. was the, the hackathon that we did on bulletins. And what I saw in the startup world was when there was a problem, people would get together and have these sort of hopeful parties that you used... way to describe it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they used, they talked about the problem, but they talked about solutions to the problem and felt this deep sense of belief that they could like change the world as a part of it, mm-hmm. you know, if you will. And, uh, my Catholic friends, we all talked about the problems but without any sense at all that they could be solved. And uh, that precluded us from trying, you know? Uh, And there's something that, that's like the Dead Sea, you know? The Dead Sea is dead because it doesn't flow out anywhere. And so it collects salt and collects, uh, collects all of these minerals that make it completely toxic in a way. (laughs) Um, And- I've been in it. I think that we- It's just like crazy. Yeah, as Catholic- (laughs) In the Dead Sea. Catholic culture, it's like that. We compile resentment because we don't think that we can solve any of these problems. And when given the opportunity to have design thinking hackathon experiences around solving problems in the church, everybody gets actually really excited and they have a lot of fun with it. So I bet. Um, yeah, no, it's it's super interesting. A lot of people just haven't been, you know, given that exposure. But once they come in contact with it, um, they become more enthusiastic, they get energized and all that stuff. And I think it goes to the broader point, which you already touched on, and we can maybe go back to this sort of broader thematic here for a second, but the fact that there are things from the secular world, from the kind of evil, even from maybe social media, right, that we can take and apply and in a way kind of Christianized for the benefit of bringing about, you know, a greater reach of the kingdom of God. And frankly, that's something the church has been doing forever, right? We've taken things that come from worlds that are not necessarily a Christian orientation and used them as tools, as resources, as symbols, as images of things that we can bring to bear in a much bigger you know, way, right? The, the, the hackathon thing for me, I mean, I, I didn't come up in a technology environment, but I came up in a startup world. Um, and, you know, we used to do, obviously, the kind of hackathon that you're talking about to develop products, the whole idea of like a minimum viable product even is an idea within that, right, about just building the little first piece of it and then iterating and doing something else. Um, or we used to call it layer cake, right? Basically, one person throws in one idea, you build on top of it, and at the end of the day, you've got this delicious kind of dessert, right, which is a new product or a new story or whatever, or even what Hollywood does with writer's rooms of people just collaborating and throwing out, hey, what if the guy did this right afterwards? All of that is how the creative process unfolds, and just because it was sort of birthed in a place that is not... Um, you know, religious or Christian or Catholic uh, doesn't necessarily mean we can't use these things to really advance ministries and advance what the church is doing. Yeah. It's, it's funny too, because I think that we, in a way, are also unaware of how the secular world has borrowed a lot of the terminology and ideas from us. So it's like we give the secular world something and then they give it back to us and we're like, Oh, that screw that. That's like bad. You know, it's dirty now that you've touched it, but branding like the church is, is the best. Like the Catholic church is literally the most powerful brand in the world. And I would say that we've been the masters of that. Like branding comes from heraldry uh, and the early church used 
symbolic communication uh, as a way of giving people belonging and a sense of identity in a way that was very deep. Um, and I think that the word and the use of that word and the way that the, the secular world has like worked through it, they've borrowed tons of religious sort of principles to, to literally hack people's subconsciouses for yeah. the sake of profit. Um, mm -hmm. But you even look at the language that they use to talk about uh, when you click on something and buy, uh, the marketing world calls that a conversion, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what capital, that's what capitalism thinks is a conversion, right? But they borrowed that word from us for a reason. There's a, a almost a religious sense to belonging to a product or to a brand. And I think that what they have learned and what they've developed um, is something that is actually right in line with the way that Catholicism has always worked and communicated. And we need to reclaim that instead of seeing it as uh, evil because it's uh, been used by other people for nefarious purposes. By the way, side note, uh, since we can ideate on the fly, what a great idea for a cool, either limited or ongoing short podcast or video series, the idea of juxtaposing the terminology, inventions, images, uh, you know, birth in the church, but kind of, you know, counterfeited in some ways by uh, the popular culture and what they really mean and having that discussion, right? Conversion, mm -hmm. conversion. It's a hell of a coffee table book, if nothing else, because that, <laughs> that's something you'd go through and go like, wow, I didn't know that. On this same point, Anthony, I got to tell you, my business partner, who you know, hit upon this exact dynamic watching one of your um, pieces, watching some of the work that your firm has done. I forget exactly which it was. I think it's related maybe to, to some of the things you've done for OSV. But there was this moment where you start talking about what the church has, or I don't know if it's you, but the piece starts talking about what the church has given the world, right? And the thing that floored him, okay, this is a guy who's not religious, not Catholic, kind of a secular, agnostic, progressive you know, type, very LA, right? But the thing that floored him was the Hail Mary. He was like, oh my gosh, that's right, because the piece said, hey, even in sports, right, the Hail Mary pass. He, he had never thought about that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and me, as a person, you know, we're all called to evangelize, but, you know, the prophet has no honor in his own home kind of thing, right? So I, <laughs> so I know that it may not be me that's going to do this evangelism, but I can tell you what, man, in that video and in that moment, he was like, I, wow, like it opened up a whole panorama for him. It was crazy. <laughs> it's awesome. exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people don't realize how much are like the church has subtly impacted the world. It's like, and, and that it really, I think because the, the church is in a way, um, like we think about it, big C, the hierarchy of the church, but the, the lived experience of the church is through the sacraments and sacraments are rituals, um, they're symbols and they work on you subtly through repetition, right? So like you kind of, I think Catholics are Catholic to their bones. And even when they leave the church, they can't un-Catholic themselves. Like it's yeah. so deep that um, they don't even know that they are thinking or feeling or operating out of a Catholic paradigm. Um, and in a way that can even last for generations. Like people who are, um, it's, it's so deeply embedded in culture that we don't even realize the things that um, the church has contributed to the world that we can't unthink or unsee. Um, sure. So, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a it's almost like an echo or like an imprint, right? Even you, you kind of mm-hmm. get it. It sort of gets uh, like what do they call that when the little ducks when they're born and then they they uh, yeah I think it's imprinting right when they like they see the first thing and then they kind of imprint on it and mm-hmm. it could be a cat or like a donkey and they're like follow it around even though they're ducks <laughs> yeah. right yeah. it's a little bit of that that happens because. Um, you're right. Even in this limited case of my business partner, we'll, we'll leave him alone after this. But, um, <laughs> you know, he, he came, he's, you know, Latino guy came up in and around Catholicism as a, this kind of cultural imprint. But it's like now that experience with your video is one of the things that maybe kind of, it's like a penny that dropped or a, or a gap that got filled in into this imprint, right? Because the imprint's there, right. but there was nothing that filled it. And it's like, this was one of the things that maybe filled it. And you know that you know God works in these kind of tapestry ways, right? Of kind of piecing all these things together. Um, right. But yeah, I agree with you 100 percent about the impact that it's had, uh, you know, culturally and how we kind of go back to that. Do you find that in the way that you navigated your conversion and, or I guess your the deepening of your faith, that there was sort of an underlying symbolic subconscious association that then got filled up with uh, this sort of mental, uh, sort of intellectual faith, but that there was always that sort of like, it was like a piece that just clicked in and then made it all work. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I feel like I got the container and then very slowly God started pouring in the content over years. And frankly, the more I, you know, it's it's a it's a spectrum, right? I mean, the faith is a kind of a spectrum. Even orthodoxy, right? Faithful following of the faith is a way, a spectrum as well, right? A, a series of emphases, plural, let's call it, a ser- mm. series of emphases that may shift for you as you come up, right? Um, and I've noticed that. My dad, who's passed away now, but my dad, um, you, when I got married, he said, my wife's last name, she's Italian like you, so her last name, is a maiden name is DiLorenzo. And when we got married, she, he took us aside, both of us, and said, as time goes on, you, pointing to me, will become more DiLorenzo, and you, pointing to her, will become more Echeverry. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. He's like, you're going to see this kind of contribution given by the other person, and you're going to maybe f- kind of fit. You're still a couple. You're still together. You're still in love, but you're going to find that you kind of, um, you know, take on these sort of attributes of these things as the broader story of your relationship and your love unfolds. And I think that's kind of like the church is, or how it's been for me, right? Which is this container. And it's been filled, but some of the things that I was really passionate about and hungry for and wanted to do, like the mental aspect that you mentioned, was a period. And I still have that, but where God has me now is sort of how do we connect that with what's going, like what St. Paul said, right? The eyes and ears of your heart. Like, how do you how do you use that intellect now to actually go out and accompany and, and be pastoral and walk with people and do all that? And so, a long way of saying... Yeah, I, I, you know, I've seen that, um, but it's taken effect in this in this way in, in my life where it's been a, you know, kind of a gradual thing, and I've kind of moved along this this sort of spectrum. At least that's how I how I envision it. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, yeah, yeah, that's that's me. I like that, by the way. Good uh, turnabout where I, like you're asking me questions. Nice, <laughs> I, I dig that. I, I always I always love that in these conversations because I was like, I try not to ask a bunch of questions, but inevitably I end up asking a bunch of questions. You're like a really interesting person, but I appreciate you uh, you asking me one one back. I'm always more comfortable being the question asker, you know. 
Yeah, but, uh, well, cool. Well, that's a regular conversation too. Right. But w- one thing that I did want to touch on um, was th- this whole idea of creativity. Are you like a? Pr- do you get exhausted by having to be creative? Like, are you always thinking, "Do I have to be on for things?" Or no? Is that not your personality? Oh my gosh! I think that I am. <sighs> creativity is the most gratifying, healing, and exhausting sort of muscle <laughs> to, yeah. for me. I I find that my creative time. So I arrange my day where my creative time is in the morning and then the more managerial and outward tasks sort of, uh, yeah. escalate throughout the day into the, to the like evening. And this, I'm mo- most tempted to give up and skip over and jump past that like creative time in the morning, just because I think there's a certain, a sense of awareness, um, that is, Actually, I heard, uh, I read something by Simone Weil, um, the sort of mystic and Catholic uh, spiritual uh, person. She wrote that she thinks that there's something very, very close to creativity and prayer that uh, is very hmm. similar, that you experience incredible temptation uh, and resistance and entering into both of those spaces. You think about um, moments in, in college, perhaps when you have to write your paper and you sit down and you find yourself needing to do everything, everything else in the world outside of writing that paper. Um, and I think everybody can relate to that. And it's sort of the same experience that we have when we sit down to pray. Um, the, uh, there's something that, that inside us, I think that really just wants to reject being that attentive to the Holy spirit and that attentive to our own hearts. Um, it's a lot easier to just sort of sit under the surface of like letting the current of whatever your thoughts are in the world is take you uh, for a ride rather than imprinting your own sort of creativity upon it. The parts of your person that are operant, that are operating or, or engaged when you create, are they the same ones that are when you pray? I think so. Uh, I mean, I probably would need to go much deeper into neuroscience to to really like prove this, but my experience has been that they both operate very much in the same, uh, in the same brain space. And I wonder if that just happens that things like that, right? So prayer, creativity, um, you know, the things that fall into that category where I view those as having to utilize like a ton of your bandwidth, if not all of your bandwidth, right? Mm -hmm. It's the kind of thing that you really can't, sort of phone in if you're doing if you're doing it right but maybe those are the things since they require so much of us that sometimes give us that trepidation or that that you want to postpone or that you want to put off or whatever because it's like maybe that's why because it's like there's a temptation use the word temptation which i actually think is really interesting because that is what it is right because you know the enemy of our soul knows how good those things are both creation and prayer and so why would he want you to take part in it um but it's just super interesting. I hadn't thought about, you know, like, is that maybe why or one of the reasons why we we sometimes struggle with these things? Because they take like they light up more parts of all of who we are. Yeah. Um, there's a book by Stephen Pressfield called The War of Art, and he mythologizes the work like the, the work of creating um, mm. and thinks about it in terms of temptation and prayer and he's a secular guy not you know not catholic but you can see he's sort of like coming to this just through the the work of having to um 
to be a writer. Um, and he sort of has made rituals of prayer around beginning to write. Um, and he sees he sees what he, he calls the, the temptations that come against the the call to write as mm. satanic. Like he see he calls it the resistance and he thinks that it's like almost a demonic attack on his person. And uh, I think that in a lot of ways, he's intuitively coming to the truth. I think that's right. Um, and I think that people who tend to really listen um, creatively, who aren't really thinking about something in terms of how to make propaganda or you know um, advertising, but who are really trying to create with an authenticity, they have to listen to something that is real, you know? And mm. uh, in that inward gaze, the Holy Spirit can speak. Um, so I think what's that's his, what's what's the guy's name? Stephen Pressfield. Pressfield. We'll we'll also add that in the show notes because that'd be really cool. And but and sounds like uh, you know the I don't know if it's the frugality of God, but basically God not missing an opportunity to communicate. Because oftentimes yeah. I find that people who are the least religious have oftentimes the most profound things to say about certain things. And this guy maybe falls in that category. Although you, just the description of this a secular guy, maybe not a not a Catholic guy. It kind of begs the question for me is like, aren't we all like, you know, even these categories we give people, and I understand why I do it all the time mm -hmm. myself, but like everyone, everyone has a soul and those souls long for their maker. Right. And we all are like doing a variety of things, whether we know that or not, that are sort of evidence of that. I think about the whole, I'm spiritual, not religious, which I definitely want your thoughts about. <laughs> like, I'm spiritual, not religious is kind of a um, a shorthand for that, right? Which is like, oh yeah, I'm into it, whatever it may be, you know, meditation or whatever, Eastern stuff or Reiki or whatever it may be, but it's it, it it's kind of evidence of this longing, you know, it seems to be more prev prevalent now maybe than it has been in other, in other generations, but Am I onto something there with like it's people kind of just longing in general, or do you think that there's more defined categories of like folks' experience? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that those the categories of secular and and Catholic are ad hoc, and obviously <laughs> they're they're mental categories, but very very tricky when you get down to it because the division. I mean. The reason why the church exists is so that there will be no division between Catholic and secular um, in the world. And insofar as we've operated for 2,000 years, there's a lot that we have accomplished in that regard. Um, even though people would say, oh yeah, there's like this hard division. If you're not in the church, you're not in the church. But the truth is, if like we don't have slavery in the world anymore, and Christianity is a massive reason for that. Um, the fact that we don't have, um, that, that women go to school and that they have an education and that we see them as uh, equals, that is a contribution by Jesus of Christianity to the world, right? Um, these are values that have totally changed in the, the bedrock of the way that the world operates. And to say, oh, there's the secular and there's the Catholic, um, doesn't acknowledge the fact that we have had this interchange that has um, really impacted the world, and there's no the, 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 it's a spectrum, not a um, not like a inside or outside kind of thing. 
That's um, that's sort of the insight that for me never gets old, the, the contributions of the church throughout history to society. It's also a great apologetic as well, because people, I think, can respond to that since they see these things tangibly in their lives. What do you make of spiritual, not religious? I think that it is a... <laughs> well, so you can hear people say that who are both Protestant and like just sort of relativist in a way, right? So like the Protestants use the word religion as a, as a dirty word because they see it as sort of a word that refers to the works that humans do to try and achieve heaven by themselves. Um, and then, and I think that they are able to sort of distance themselves from the brand baggage of organized religion that way, or at least they're trying to. I, I don't think that the world actually like buys it very much, but <laughs> right. that's their that's their shtick. Uh, and then the spiritual but not religious sort of relativism, like Eastern thing, I think is a uh, again a way to try and avoid the baggage of organized religion, but to open themselves open themselves beyond sort of bare atheism and. Um, like meaninglessness of of like the scientific approach to to life that ultimately doesn't really offer a whole lot of purpose and I would say that I think it's a really great movement. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote I think uh, a lot about how God made He built us to Christianity through paganism, then Judaism, then Christianity, then the the full revelation. And I think that each person actually goes through a similar process of conversion. Um, Mm. And if you start with sort of bare materialism and there is no meaning, there is no spiritual supernatural, and you go to, well, I've had some, like I've done yoga and I had like a powerful experience meditating on, on love or something. I think it's a really great open door, you know, like it's, it's an openness to the world that is beyond. And I think it builds us towards an ability to have a dialogue about mysticism. Um, so I'm not threatened by it the same way that I think a lot of people are um, in, I guess, the worlds that, that, that we run in. Yeah, I think it's cool to think about it in stages too, you know, or even going back to the marketing kind of modality of a conversion, that there are kind of parts of that funnel, stages in that funnel, moments that you go through. I hadn't heard it put in the way that you have, but I totally buy it. I also think that that evolution in those phases are both spiritual and physical, right? Because, and again, all of this points us to the kind of Christian view of human anthropology that we're blessed to hold as being Catholics that these things are related, right? Um, and, you know, th- other thing, the, the degree to which you can go from point A to point B on that continuum can be like over 50 years, right. or it can be over 10 minutes, you know, like, um, I mean, you've heard about these kind of battlefield conversions and all this other stuff, right? People can get pushed into those things given their physical um, environment and sometimes in unusual ways. This, by the way, all a clever a um, segue into the physical aspects that I wanted to chat with you about, one of which is um, boxing, <laughs> yes. right? And, <laughs> and, you know, this idea, you know, St. Paul famously talks about pummeling and all this other stuff as a way to kind of subdue his body, but there is absolutely spiritual growth that can be the byproduct or related or, or, or integrated with physical transformation, 
And, uh, you know, I, I wonder how much that has been active in your spiritual journey and maybe even related to boxing. I don't know. Yeah. So the reason you bring it up, I, I, during COVID, I had sort of the, the classic midlife crisis, like I need to exercise more, but like, I'm going to do something crazy. And I decided to get back into boxing, which I had done in college. Actually, I was introduced to it in seminary. Um, fighting for me has been a, a deeply, deeply important part of my spirituality. And um, when I was in seminary, I, there was a lot of struggle for me. It was a very, very difficult season of my life. And one of my sort of mentors in that uh, was a guy who was a little older, had come into seminary later, and he had been a Golden Gloves champion. And um, he saw um, a certain, like, just a, a missing link for the spirituality of the guys in the seminary. Um, hmm. They were not, we were not comfortable in our own bodies. There was this, there was the deep sense that we needed to be really strong men, but we didn't really understand what that meant. And he was like, okay, well, all of you guys who want to, who want to learn how to do combat sports and grow in your manhood or something, like you guys should come and start training with me and we'll do some bouts for the, for the seminary. We'll like, set guys up from different floors and we'll have these like fraternity sort of wars between um, groups in the seminary, if you will. And uh, it, it was a really fun thing, but for me, it was deeply, deeply impactful because I needed a physical uh, metaphor, physical journey to go through that matched the spiritual experiences that I was having in prayer. Like I, I, I think men particularly need this, but this is, I think, a very Catholic instinct in general, which is that our souls and our bodies are connected. And um, the interplay that we go through between those two are very important. I, I think that the, for me, I, I'm actually like, I have a lot of blocks to spiritual breakthrough. Um, I have a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of like, you know, wounds and inner things that um, I, ha I can't overcome by just sitting down and thinking through them. Like, I need to be sort of faced with them in a, in a way that short circuits that all the mm. brain stuff that's going on. And yeah. Mm. So when I get in the ring, I'm facing my fears in a, in a way that like, it's like that other person becomes the monstrous like tempter. And I have to be completely focused on like, uh, in, in defending myself and coming forward. And you can see in me in all of the things that like I, I'll take a video of myself sparring now and it's just like, oh gosh, like I look ridiculous because I'm like overreacting to every punch that he throws at me. I'm like backing up way too much and I can just see that's a, that's a physical metaphor for all the things that I do when I'm faced with conflict or when I'm faced with mm. something that I'm afraid of. And it teaches me in, in a very physical way how to wow. show up. Um, yeah. That's super, super interesting. I mean, look, I, I, I've, um, my wife can attest to this and maybe you and I've even talked about this a little bit, but, um, I've always regarded, uh, you know, physical combat, boxing, that kind of thing, MMA as, as so, you know, as an amazing, if it, if it were that it existed an amazing way to advance people's relationships, communities, spiritual walks, et cetera. 
because of the things that happen, both all the points you made in terms of the leading up to the actual combat itself, the things you learn about yourself in it, the vanquishing of, you know, these sort of internal demons or maybe even real demons, you know, <laughs> all of these things are true. And then the part that I think is so needed today, maybe more than ever, is the kind of quasi and the, the kind of quasi reconciliation end of a boxing bout, right? So right. there's nothing, it's impossible to explain this to somebody unless you've actually done it or been in it. But the idea of just going blow to blow and just, you know, like punching somebody, getting punched in the face and all of this battle going back and forth. And then hugging it out afterwards, right? like respecting, loving that athlete, like literally putting, especially if you happen to knock somebody out, right? And, and showing concern and going down and getting them. And that's a hundred percent genuine. That is 200% authentic. It doesn't happen right. all the time, but when it happens, it is, it, that creates on a level of psychology, on a spiritual level, such extraordinary growth and 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 bonding in a way that it's hard to find examples for that that exist elsewhere, right? In terms of did, the the things that could be available to you. Do you did know what you I mean? ever do it? Did you ever do a combat sport? I never did in an organized way. I've been mm -hmm. in a number of fights, and this yeah. is where I'm getting my experience from. Is you know uh, the first time I got punched in the face, I was in third grade. Never forgot that mm -hmm. the kids. Uh, you know, you remember the kid's name. In my case, it was Gunnar Hellstrom. That was his name. He's a <laughs> wow, Swedish what kid. He, a name. <laughs> he was a yeah. He was a Swedish or Dutch Danish kid. That it was like a you know it was there from. Uh, I lived. I grew up in the Caribbean during this phase. But anyway, he was like his parents were expats or something. I never forgot his name. But just that moment of of like clarity of right. wow this exists never forgot that the <laughs> fist fights and fights that i got into in high school middle school even college actually with my college roommate um again moments of total transformation total transformation you know especially again that last part and so i've been super bullish on the fact they even joke with people about it's like well we need to get get into the boxing ring yeah you need to get into the boxing ring and I feel that there's nothing that 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 in particular, uh, you know, men growing up, like man, it, it does something and it benefits you in a real way to have been in a fight and frankly to have gotten your ass kicked maybe once or twice. Like it really does, like equalize and create like a, a, a I don't know like a like a ground to grow from spiritually and so. I, I don't know what you call that. Maybe it's a new religious order. Maybe it's a new spirituality. I have no idea. But like there's yeah. something deeply, deeply, deeply spiritual about the whole idea. I Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that so my experience of it was transformative for me in terms of offering me a confidence and a clarity that I, I never have experienced elsewhere. But the um, the fraternity that, that we sort of created um, among the, the fighters there was a, I've never had a deeper sense of, of intimacy with other men than in those fight nights. And yeah. um, I think that it's like <laughs> um, a, this is something that's just missing in general from our culture. There's such a missing piece because safety is so important to us. Um, and I think that really violates the, the human, the male need particularly to learn how to challenge themselves and learn how to learn what they can take in terms of damage and in terms of pain and all of that stuff. Like it, we need it. But I think that the church actually um, particularly needs it because I don't know what your take on this is, but I feel like we are walking heads 
And our theology mm-hmm. is not the, is totally antithetical to that, but we act like the most important thing to do as a Catholic is to learn theology and to study books and read and etc. But um, the experience of wrestling with God and like you, you see in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, even like the physicality of the faith is so, so, so important. And mm. the way that God communicates to us is so physical. Uh, and if we are not willing to enter into some of these like risky experiences, you know, of wilderness, we're not going to be able to really authentically experience God. I mean, that's where he is. Like Jesus did a 40 day fast after his baptism. Like I was a youth minister and I tried to get uh, kids to do a three day fast with me and all these men loved it, but moms wouldn't let them do it. They're like, you're going to die. You're going to kill these kids. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, Like we're so, so coddled and so coddling. And uh, that's very, very antithetical to like the mystical experience. So uh, I think that's a problem. Well, for sure. And something that is also worthy of a lot more prayer discernment, maybe a hackathon or two as well, because (laughs) again, it goes back to maybe if there's a thematic at all in the conversation that we've had over the last hour or so, not quite, but we're getting there, um, is this idea of, of this kind of view of human anthropology, right? Physical, spiritual you know, reason, intellect, and will, what makes us persons. And you can you can slide the dial too much on that bias in one direction or another, but you got to be cognizant of all the parts, right? Um, or they're not even parts, but you know what I mean? The, the things that make us persons and humans and in, made in the image and likeness of God is that we have these different things. It's so easy to throw out the physical part of it and just say, well, I've now ascended or even, you know, I've ascended to the spiritual realm or even worse, maybe I'm, I'm now just in focus in the intellectual realm. And, and the reality of it is, is we have to activate all of these sectors of our being well in order to do and achieve that perfection that the gospel calls us to it because it is perfection, right? It is perfection we're called to. Yeah. And St. Paul gives us the best examples of it, right? He says, like, you got to tell the truth in love, right? So it's always that kind of duality. And I couldn't agree with you more, man. I think that, like, not only are we not exercising these kind of physical parts, um, we're not recognizing the contribution that they make to the totality or to the whole, right? Fasting is an example. I finally figured out fasting like a year ago. I mean, that's how long it took me. Fasting is the way the body prays. That's like how I say it to people now. Fasting is the body's prayer. There you go. And why should the body pray? Because it was made by God and we're not, it's not an accident. Like all of matter is. And so how we work, how we work out, how we utilize our our bodies, our physical fitness, all of these things can be keys to unlock a further step in that walk of unity with God and with each other. And I think we are like in a desperate need for, you know, some boxing camps and some other things like that. And maybe, you know, in, in these areas of ministry, because it could be hugely helpful. Yeah. I'm going to say a couple of things that are like really controversial. Is that all right? Oh, perfect. Okay. Perfect. Please so, do. Um, there's a, this refer, this is referring to youth and the way that we deal with youth in mm-hmm. um, the process of catechesis, but there, because of the experiences we've had with um, abuse and uh, the sort of policy lash that we've had against that, um, 
a lot of the words that we've been using to describe the environments that we want to create, like it's safe. We want to create safe environments yeah. for kids. Um, and I understand the need for policies to create a deeper sense of um, accountability. And I want kids to be safe. But um, I think that men particularly need physical danger in order to understand God. Like God does not come to those who do not need God. And we don't feel the need for God until we are in danger. Like it's just part of, and, and we don't feel the, the rush and the adrenaline and the exhilaration of God unless we're touching upon the risk that comes from stepping out, you know, in faith, uh, letting go of something that is, is really who, what we thought was who we were, right? Like bo- men right now, if you, want a, if you want men to come to the faith and really dig into it, like you can't put them in a, in a place where they hear a talk, listen to music and are sitting down. Like it's just not going to work. All of the, the, the success that I had from youth ministry and um, in, in all of that, like it was full contact shit. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> it was waking kids up in the middle of the night to go out in a field and have super non-safe environment, legal, like wrestling matches that would have gotten me fired if people knew that I was doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it worked and it created total, total buy-in for the guys. Um, and I think that that's something that we as a culture need to figure out how to grapple with because there's a need for, um, for danger in the process of mysticism. Uh, and if we want to teach our young men that and we want to keep them in the church, like that has to be something we give them. And we have to figure out how to do it without making it literally like not safe. And I guess, I don't know even how to describe yeah. it, but um yeah. Well, so. I mean, you know, we 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 probably had a lot of examples of stuff like that for the last, you know, ever up until about 50, 60 years ago. So I think we can find some use cases in the past that kind of reflect or illustrate what you're what you're describing. Um, and I do think that that is something very worthy of additional reflection. There was a guy I forget. I'm forgetting his name, who was recently a guest on Rogan's podcast. Um your, your neighbor there in Austin. Um, and he was talking a lot about a similar issue. I'm going to try to dig his name up here in the background if I can. And if not, I'll throw it in the show notes. But um, Is it Chaco Willink? No, no, no. It was a guy who was, he's the, the military dude, right? No, no. It was, it, was, um, it was a guy who was specifically speaking about the idea of comfort being antithetical to a culture's thriving. Yeah. So there wasn't like a religious tip to it, but... Um, but it was very much about this. It was like, you know, not just individually we were, were very comfortable because we are, but also generations and generations of a level of comfort and satisfaction that haven't existed historically from a, you know, just a, you know, a, a geologic time scale level. You know what I mean? Right. Like just in the last like couple of years, really, if you think of it in those terms, have we had the things, indoor plumbing, electricity, the internet, all this stuff. And it's really something that at least the data this person was pointing out, I'll find his name, but th- th- this person was pointing out is that the data, the results of that 
Like, it's not good for the most part. Like, it's kind of antithetical to the idea of how you make a culture thrive. You need that friction. You need, and of course, you're. Li- I'm listening to this, you're listening to this, and you can see a scripture all over it, the church all over it, right? The idea of iron sharp- sharpening iron. I mean, yeah, like, we've known this. Right. But these guys, again, the secular being the example to the, to the religious here, these guys are figuring this out, and they're onto something. You yeah. know what I mean? Because it's true. We need that that thing to push against in order to to grow, to transform, to be to to you know to kind of come of age in our in this in the faith journey and to and to draw closer ultimately to God, which should be the goal. Yeah, I mean, have you heard of Sebastian Junger and his book Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging? Mm, I think I've heard of the name, but I don't. I, I can't say credibly. He's, Sounds familiar. He's a journalist, a war journalist. Basically, he uh-huh. goes into combat with soldiers and reports on them. And he wrote this book, I, I think, basically inspired by trying to answer the question, why is there a massive uh, like growth of PTSD in our culture when mm-hmm. in past cultures there wasn't such a thing described? And he talks about the difference between a wartime soldier coming back to American culture versus a wartime soldier going back to Indian, like Native American cultures. Um, hmm. And one of the ma- major insights he has was, he asks the question, why, what would we expect when massive crises are happening? For instance, the bombing of London in World War II, would we expect the rates of psychosis to go up or down during that? Would we expect the suicide rates to go up or down during that? Of course, our expectation would be up, but the reality is all mental health things, you know, like indicators went up during the bombing of London. This deep crisis that was really horrible where people were huddled together in mass in these um, like underground places, their, their mental health went up ma- like massively. Right. Um, so the metrics of what makes us happy and safe and joyful, et cetera, those things are what you're saying got went higher when there was a kind of national or broader crises to contend with. Exactly. And I think it's just pointing at the fact that like the need for, for in, in a way, adventure for challenge um, is something that is a deep part of the longing of the human heart. And I think particularly the masculine heart. And we are doing everything that we can to remove those things from people uh, right now, particularly yeah. in church. And mm. that is like the total opposite of what we need to do if we need, if we want to offer people religious experiences. Mm. One thought that I had or an image that I, that I had, um, is the idea and you're a musician so you'll appreciate this the idea of a feedback loop Mm -hmm. when you get a microphone close to a speaker or you have you know a dozen microphones and somebody's talking and the microphones are picking up the echo of the echo of the echo and then eventually we get that crazy squelch that everyone's familiar with Mm -hmm. and doesn't know where it comes from there's something similar in the spiritual life that ties to this dynamic you just described. Because if we're just focused on us, focused on me, eventually we hit that feedback squelch. Right. Okay. It's us putting us in front of us in front of us. And eventually it's like, boom. The advice I give to a lot of people who are suffering, in particular with depression, 
mm-hmm. in my ministry, you know, or people who are anxious, one of the very first things that I, that I encourage them to do is go and help somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like literally dump all of that bandwidth, energy, focus, enthusiasm that you have for your own sense of well-being. Like, what am I thinking? How's it going? Am I feeling okay? Am I not feeling okay? Oh, this is happening. All of that just becomes a feedback loop and eventually you get that crazy squelch. Yeah. The moment you go and you like, I'm going to go and do like the Jesuits do. They have that, you know, agere contra, which is do the opposite of what you're thinking. Right. So, okay, fine. Go and go into the homeless encampment and start having conversations with random people. Okay. Trust me that your anxiety level will dramatically decrease dramatically. Right. Okay. Depression level. I'm not saying it's going to cure you. Okay. Mm -hmm. But believe me. Okay. I bet everything I own on the fact that you're the levels of anxiety and depression are going to drop. Right. I think that's a similar concept with the bombing of London and all this other stuff, right? I mean, just at a more, uh, that at a more massive scale. Right. It's a, um, human beings are not made for comfort or made for greatness. You know, this is like a, it's almost like a trope, but there's actually a really true statement to that. And um, we, we find our fulfillment in sacrifice for the ideals that we believe in. And I think that part of the part of the growth, the spiritual growth that we need to be cultivating for people is like how to sacrifice, how to listen to the things that you need to sacrifice for. Um, and I never really had heard that. I think Jordan Peterson has sort of become a very popular proponent of that sort of language, but um, I think it's very true. It's very, very true that um, we aren't happy necessarily with growing our um, our, our, our wealth or our comfort, we're actually happy when we're sacrificing for that, sacrificing that for bigger things that are more important to us. Um, and anyway, I think that that's like a really important, um, important thing that ties together everything that I, I've been talking about for, uh, the last hour. Hmm. So I know I got to get you uh, on your way, but, um, and by the way, we should definitely do this again. If you're in LA, even better, because I'd love to have you here. That's, I mean, you know, these things always work better when, when we're face to face, but I think we've got decent technology now. So hopefully it's not, uh, not too bad, but, um, we have one more segment of the show, which is called wait, what we ask a couple of uh, unconventional questions. You will have no problem handling these Anthony, but I did want to just, you know, give people a chance to like connect with you and to follow you and to understand the things you're up to. Like, where can we see your art? Where can we see you fight? Where can we find out about Catholic creatives? Where can we like, what are the things that are, that are like happening now that are part of that journey that, that you would share with people? Yeah. Right now I would say that the best place to, to follow me is, um, on my Instagram at the Don Dambro, um, or on sherwoodfellows.com is the agency's website. Um, I am pretty bad at, I'm, I've been sort of in a hole for the last year, really. Uh, but if you follow me on social, you'll see the boxing stuff, and then um, we can you can look at more of the work that I've been doing on on SherwoodFellows.com. Cool. And next show, I mean, we we didn't get to you know punk music, we didn't get to thought silos, we didn't yeah. get to uh, sleep apnea. We got, <laughs> we got we got a bunch of things that we can get to, but yeah. um, I know I gotta I gotta get you on your way. All right, so are you uh, ready to play? Ready to play. Wait, what? All right, let's do it. So, question number one, Anthony. Mm-hmm. And there's always a space time continuum question. Okay, so this is space time continuum. 
You get a chance to defy the laws of physics, time and space-wise, and uh, a cruiserweight match is announced. Boxing match between... Cruiserweight. Yeah, cruiser division, cruiserweight, like the kind of before heavyweight, but not quite middleweight. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm assuming that's what these guys were. I could be completely wrong because we don't know. But Mm -hmm. it's Moses, Old Testament, versus St. Paul. Okay, sort of the old representing the old, and or the most representing the Old Testament, St. Paul representing the new. Mm-hmm. The outcome is a third round TKO. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. who won, and why was it a TKO? Did the ref call it? Did a fighter quit? Was it a three knockdown rule? So, David, I'm sorry, Moses and St. Paul, boxing match, third round TKO. Who won and why? I'm assuming we're talking both of them in their prime. So this is like. You know, not the old Moses, but like the you know the 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 young just got out of the desert. I, I'm going to go with Moses. I think that um, I think that he actually killed a guy, uh, so uh, he's got the the trigger in him, and I think that um, uh, obviously that would help him in a in a match. I would say uh, it would be an overhand right. I would assume that's 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 what he he used to throw. The Ten Commandments down, and or the first like tablets down, and break them. So I think that's the punch that would have taken out Paul. <laughs> he just definitely seems like he's a more explosive guy. Although there are some theologians that believe that Paul participated in killing Stephen too. So oh, yeah. both of these guys may have had you know a good uppercut or two. But I, I think I agree with you on Moses. Just seemed like a, just a a bit more ruddy a, a guy. You know what I mean? Who yeah. could, who could uh, make it happen? Yeah. All right, very good. Question number two. You're in charge of the programming for a large national Catholic youth conference. Hey, we were just talking about that. You need to pick a musical act, but options, Anthony, are woefully slim and only punk bands are available. Mm -hmm. If you had to pick between Black Flag, The Misfits, or The Dead Kennedys, who would play at the conference? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you got the Irish. I was going to say, and why? (laughs) They're Irish. I mean, you've got you've got a real like uh, real Catholic connection there. I mean, it's, it's a few steps past it, but I mean, they've got they've got some. I mean, their culture has definitely been influenced, so I think they'll they'll fit. Beautiful. All right, I'll go with that. I don't I don't know much about that about them beyond uh, what you just said, so uh, I'm gonna go with you. Okay, last question. Question number three. Um, you have an audience with the Pope and can make a singular recommendation about the communication strategy for the Vatican, which in a way is a proxy for the church at large, right? Mm -hmm. Your recommendation is centered on hiring one role and position. Mm -hmm. Which is it? Um. You have an audience with the Pope and can make a singular recommendation about the communication strategy for the Vatican. Your recommendation is centered on hiring one particular role. Which uh, is it? An axeman to fire people. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I just like I, a, like a consultant, basically. Come yeah, ba- and, basically, yeah. A con- just somebody that's just going to come in and just fire tons and tons and tons of people. I mean, I think that if if we just chopped that whole thing down by like maybe a couple thousand, like it would be better for everybody. So, yeah. And that would that would uh, that would uh, yield uh, a benefit to the communication strategy uh, across the board as well. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, cool. I mean, okay. So to be real, I think that it's a, it's communication is a is a 
Good communication is a function of clarity and massive bureaucracies with lots of political intrigue and lots of people who all have a say is like totally the worst possible thing for communication, positive communication. I think that the church um, needs to get back to the St. Lawrence style, like, here are the riches, my people. I'm giving all of them away, uh, all of the treasures away, and we're just focusing on the people. I think that that's the, I think we need to get back to that level of like willingness to, to put everything on the, on the altar um, and be small, so. Love that, and thank you for the added flourish and bow of using a deacon as your reference with St. Lawrence there. That was very nice. I like that. I yeah. like that. You're delighting as you go along. You're, you are a good marketer, Anthony. All right, very good. I do. appreciate it. All right, my friend. Well, listen, um, thank you for being on the show. Really appreciate the conversation. Mean it seriously. When you're in L.A., let's do this again um, You know, here in person. God bless you on your work, on your ministry, on your art, on your boxing continue to share everything that you do and, and, you know, just be this great, you know, calling card and beacon of what's possible in the faith life that you are. And uh, I just wish you, uh, you know, continued great success. And thanks for being on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. And everybody else, remember to subscribe, share this show with your friends and family, and we'll see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's call-usa.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.